Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 41. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Anthony, for reading the scripture for us uh, online. This morning. Uh, so, good morning uh, to all of you that are attending here and those that are joining in a live stream. I just at this moment just want to say uh, for those of you that uh, have to stay home uh, because you've had an encounter or you're not feeling well, I just know that our church is thinking of you, uh, that our church is praying for you, that together as a community, that uh, we, we, we are one, uh, we're together. So, uh, as, the, uh, as the virus um, is going around the city, just there's no need for panic, uh, but, you know, be cautious. Uh, do what you need to do to protect those around you and to love those around you. Uh, continue to practice whatever you need to do. Um, and uh, just, just know that uh, there are, it is spreading around the city. So pray, pray hard. I uh, pray that uh, God would continue to protect us and his people and continue to strengthen the people that are helping out in the city as well as the burnout uh, is, is real. Uh, we, we had an English uh, leadership retreat last couple days, uh, Friday night and Saturday, so my voice is a bit coarse because I was shouting through my mask, um, and I don't know how people in the medical field or those that wear the mask all day uh, do it because I felt like I had to scream in order to project my voice, so that's why my voice is a bit coarse, but <clears throat> I'm excited for what we're going to do uh, this year as the leadership met together and really planned and prayed and sought God's will through this year, excited for uh, what this year is going to hold for us. And also want to invite you out to the Sanctuary course, which starts next week, 9.30 a.m. online and also in person. Uh, as a church, um, 
last two years, it's been hard, uh, and this topic isn't new, but as a church, we, we care about brokenness, we care about your spiritual life, we care about your mental health, and, and we're looking to draw, uh, uh, to create a space that's safe um, uh, for us to build a loving community and to just walk with one another through these tough topics. So you're more than welcome to join. Uh, email me, uh, talk to me afterwards, and I'll give you more information about that. Well, before shows uh, like Top Chef and Chopped, whose cuisine will reign supreme? Iron Chef America was one of the uh, quintessential, I love that word, quintessential uh, culinary game shows in the early 2000s, right? We think of scenes like the kitchen stadium. We think of scenes like the best of the face of, uh, of the Iron Chefs will face off with the masters, uh, to cook the cuisine, let the battle begin. You think of phrases like that. There's one more secret ingredient. One more secret ingredient, uh, as, as the uh, chairman of the show talks about. Our secret ingredient is what? Uh, well, go to the next slide here. In dramatic fashion, right? Today's secret ingredient is apples. <laughs> something even more dramatic, like something really over the top, and is, you know, it's way over the top for something like this. And of course, the game show, uh, the show starts off with the chairman saying, and now, America, with an open heart and an empty stomach, I say unto you the words of my uncle. Anyone know? A la cuisine! <laughs> and he points off, and he does this karate move, I don't know, and he jumps back, and, and, and then the show, show begins. But I start off this morning <laughs> with this uh, story and illustration, talk, talking about Iron Chef. As he reveals the secret ingredient of every single show of what the chefs are going to use, the first century people were asking a very similar question. What's the secret ingredient of the church? What is the secret ingredient of the church? What, uh, why was it exploding and moving in all the ways that, that it was? And many in the first century were wondering the same thing. Why did Christianity spread so fast in its early days? So fast. It was a, a small group. Uh, that, had, uh, that was a small group, not a huge group of people. It wasn't like an army sweeping across. It was a small group of people that made an influence, a huge amount of change. They didn't have an army. There was no conquest uh, sweeping around. Actually, most of the time, they were pacifists, uh, not fighting back against the army. In fact, they didn't fight back. They prayed for their enemies, these Christians. They prayed for them and said, you know what? If this is what God's will, we want you to accept the gospel and to love God. We're not going to fight back. Uh, but we want you to know God. It didn't make, uh, there wasn't anything that people were getting out of it. It didn't make people rich. In fact, when they came to faith, they actually gave up everything uh, to follow Christ, uh, to, to love him and to walk with him. It was a mixed community, racially diverse. People that were rejected in society were accepted into the church, into, into, uh, into the groups of Christians that were meeting there. They took care not only of their own poor, but they took care of the poor of other people too. And, you, and, and it boggled the minds of the first century Roman Empire and the people then, just saying, what was their secret ingredient? What's the secret sauce? What are these Christians doing? Where did all this come from? And I'm hoping we'll see this in the sermon this morning. The secret of the church is the power of the Spirit. The secret of the church is the power of the Spirit as he was unleashed on that day at Pentecost. You see, the coming of the Spirit, once again, as we look back to this passage here in Acts 2, of how Jesus really is who he says he is. The Spirit confirms that. The Spirit attests to that. 
that Jesus is Lord and he's Messiah and that he is in control and that he's reigning. And we're in a series called the book of Acts, Gospel in Motion. And we are watching the gospel unfold before our eyes as the first century Christians take this word and embody it and they live it out. And the gospel just explodes from that place in Jerusalem to the known world. And the gospel is set in motion. And today we're looking at the first message recorded for us that's been preached post-ascension when Jesus uh, goes back to heaven where 3,000 people responded to this message. Man, 3,000 people. I, I read this, and I'm, as we read that, as Anthony read that, I'm like, what, that was like two and a half minutes, that sermon? Uh, <laughs> and you're like, well, Doug, why do you preach for so long then? Um, well, I want to add later on in the passage, it does, uh, Luke records for us, there were many other words. Uh, the Greek translation for many other words is 30 minutes. Uh, that's, what, <laughs> that's a joke. Uh, so, uh, so, so there were many other words that are explained, right? There are things, this is what Luke was recorded for us, the core things of what Peter was saying, but 3,000 people responded to that message, and it wasn't just 3,000 people. that They heard this message, and they said, say no more, Peter. What should I do? I'm like, in all my years of ministry, no one's ever said that to me. Doug, stop preaching. What do I need to do right now at this moment? See, it's been 10 days, 10 days of waiting, where Jesus said, wait. Wait, just wait. The Spirit will come. Just wait. Ten days of waiting between Christ's ascension and the day of Pentecost. Ten days after Jesus left the earth. And they're gathered in the upper room. We didn't read this passage, but it kind of sets the context into the Peter sermon. They were gathered in the upper room and what? A sound like the blowing of a violent wind in verse 2 comes in. And what seemed like tongues of fire. And a lot of uh, metaphors and illustration here because you can't exactly explain the act of God. You try to with human words, but the best that we, we, with the best words that we have, but we can't explain what God is doing. So we, here, they're trying to explain with the best language that they have of what is going on here. A sound like the blowing of a violent wind and what seemed like tons of fire above the apostles' heads, and they were filled with the Spirit. And then they started speaking in tongues, which is really an utterance of, of what resembles a language, a holy, angelic language that requires an interpreter for someone to understand. And the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, that it is a spiritual gift, but it's one of the least of the spiritual gifts. It's actually the first of the spiritual gifts that leads someone to faith. The role of speaking in tongues would be a sign for those uh, around who did not believe that something is happening, that God is on the move. And that's exactly what we see here, that as they're filled with the Spirit, as they're speaking these languages, we see that it leads to them speaking languages that they did not know. And people outside hearing their own foreign language. And some also have interpreted this as not only speaking in an angelic tongue, but also the gift of languages as someone having the gift of tongues. That if you're a person that understands many languages and can speak many languages, that's also a form and variation of it. And here, which seems to be the case here, that with the different languages, that, uh, that, that, that the people heard the language in their own tongue and they were amazed. They said, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans, meaning just mere simple men that are uneducated and, and just normal people. How, are they, how do they know this foreign language? So why were so many people from different languages there to begin with? Well, a lot of people were there to celebrate Pentecost. That was the Jerusalem was filled and it swelled from anywhere from 50,000 people to 200,000 people would come into the temple, come into that place, a lot of people would come and celebrate Pentecost, which is also known as the Feast of Weeks, 
because it celebrated the harvest. So they had uh, some money in their purse and their coin in their purse and they're doing well and they come and celebrate and to give thanks. And the Jewish people were instructed in Leviticus 23 uh, to present a grain offering to the Lord, uh, the first of their grain offering as thanksgiving to God. And it's also called Pentecost because it's 50 days after the previous feast, the feast of the first fruits. So Pentecost actually means 50. Uh, that's what that, that word means. It's 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. And all of these Jewish males were coming in. They're instructed to come and to make these offerings. And so it's sort of like this world fair, all right? This world fair of different cultures and languages all coming into, into this place. And then God acts. It's like the, the city is primed. The people have come. The agents are here that will carry the message. The vessels are here to carry the message to the ends of the ends of the world as they knew at that time and God acted and Peter here rises up the same Peter who denied Jesus three times now is filled with the spirit filled with courage filled with power and 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 rises up in this situation in this time and he rises up and speaks and explains that this was necessary as part of God's will as part of God's will quoting from Joel God's pouring out of the spirit leads to the people calling on in the name of the Lord that the Spirit's coming as a sign of a new age, that Jesus is who he says he is, that new life is real, that we can be filled with power and hope and joy. And when we see the pouring out of the Spirit, those around will call on the name of the Lord, and that's when we know the new phase of the, the new times of what God is doing here on earth has begun. The pouring out of the Spirit points back to the power and the truth of the cross of Christ. It's not something new. Actually, it points back and reaffirms what Jesus has done. And we read here in verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart And from, from this message. They were cut to the heart. I love this. They were cut to the heart. Why? As they heard from the word. So they were cut to the heart by the sword of the Spirit. <laughs> Those came and divided their hearts and pierced their hearts and broke apart all the sin and brokenness and confusion of the time, the sword, that they were cut to the heart by the sword of the Spirit and from hearing God's word. And D.L. Moody once said this as a lengthy quote, I firmly believe that the moment our hearts are emptied of selfishness and ambition and self-seeking and everything that is contrary to God's law, the Holy Spirit will come and fill our, every corner of our hearts. But if we're full of pride and conceit, ambition and self-seeking, pleasure in the world, there is no room for the Spirit. I also believe that many a man is praying to God to fill him when he is full already with something else. Before we pray that God would fill us, I believe we ought to pray that he would empty us. There must be an emptying before there can be a filling. And when the heart is turned upside down and everything that's contrary to God is turned out, then the Spirit will come. So here the apostles have been waiting that their hopes and dreams and everything they knew of God seemed to have left. They saw Jesus uh, crucified, and then Jesus came back, and then now they're waiting. They're like, what is going on here? I've, they've been emptied <laughs> of their own desires. They've, they're fully all bought, in for what, uh, bought into what God is going to do here. And they were cut to the heart themselves, and the people there around heard the message of God. And they were emptied as well, and God's, heart, uh, God's word cut their hearts open and pierced their hearts to receive this new, uh, this, this spirit, this empowering but what did they hear exactly? Which is what I'm going to focus on the rest of the sermon. What did they hear exactly? What cut the people to the heart? 
what did they do in response to being cut to the heart? Because I believe there's a call for us today too. See, Peter wishes to correct a misunderstanding. They were confused about who this Jesus was. And the apostles too, they were confused. Uh, they're still not really sure what was going on. This is really important for us to understand that Christianity is Christ. That Christianity is Christ, not a set of moral beliefs or ethics or just a way to think about our li- life. Like, is it pleasant to think about you know, godly Christian things? No, Peter's sermon starts and ends with Christ. That Christianity is about Christ and the resurrection and how he's Lord and Messiah. And what cut them to the heart? What did they hear? There are two things that they heard. They realized that they had been wrong about Christ. They realized they'd been wrong about Christ, <clears throat> the people that were listening. And there were, secondly, they were responsible for the death of Christ, for the death of Jesus. These were the two things that they heard that cut them to the heart. They realized, firstly, they realized they had been wrong about Christ. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was the man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Jesus of Nazareth was accredited, accredited by God. And a little bit of a word study, if you're geeky like me, <laughs> the, the Greek word for, for, for this word <clears throat> accredited is apodegmenos. And it only is a rare word. Why I bring this up? It's only as a rare word that appears only four times in the New Testament, and it means to show forth the quality of an entity, to show forth the truthfulness of something, to demonstrate that something is true, to draw attention to a specific object. And if you go back to verse twenty-two, who is Jesus accredited by? Jesus was accredited by God Himself. That God is the one that's saying this Jesus is true. God is the one that is saying the quality of this entity that I'm presenting to you, he is who he says he is. That he, God is the one that draws attention to this specific object. That, that means that ought to draw our attention to that this Jesus is valuable. This Jesus is worthy. There's something important here about this Christ. And maybe they got something wrong about this Christ because they crucified him and they killed him. And they, they casted him off to the side. <clears throat> but what we also see here, that as God accredits Jesus is accredited by God. What we also see here is that Jesus, he's Lord and Messiah. That this is the correct view. This is the correct view of this Jesus. He's Lord and Messiah. I've said this before. He's Lord, meaning curios. He's the one who's in charge. He's the one who has authority. He's the master. But he's also Messiah. He's the Christos. He's the fulfillment of not only the Jewish, but our expectations of a deliverer. Whatever it is that we're looking for, for delivering, for saving, Jesus is it. And why this is important for us, notice the sequence. Peter doesn't say he is, uh, Luke doesn't say that he, Luke quoting Peter, (laughs) he doesn't say that he's Messiah and Lord, but he's Lord and Messiah. That's important. That's vital for us. Notice which one comes first. It's Lord. He is Lord. As the old quote goes, Jesus is either Lord of all or not at all. <laughs> Jesus is either Lord of all or not at all. And some of us, why this is important, <clears throat> as I'm losing my voice, some of us haven't received him as Lord yet. We haven't received him as Lord yet. Maybe we like Jesus. Maybe we like his teachings. 
you know, he's a pretty good guy, <laughs> this Jesus. We like what he does and how he heals people and how he loves people, but he's not Lord yet. He's not Lord. He, he doesn't rule over every part of our hearts. And that, in that day, the people realized that, that, man, maybe he is, I'm not sure if he's a fulfillment yet, but he's definitely not Lord of my life, that he's not in control of my life, that he's not sitting over my life in, 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 in ruling and guiding and where I'm listening to him. And in verses 34 to 35, <clears throat> uh, Peter quotes from Psalm 110, which speaks to the lordship and the messiahship of Jesus, of the Messiah that they're looking for. Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted OT verses in the NT. Uh, it's the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Acts 2, 34, 35, Psalm 110, For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's all about Jesus being Lord, about him being ruler, about being, him being God, about him being just, and how he is in control. And some of us, we like the idea of Jesus, but we don't think he is Lord. Why? Because maybe this question hits home for us, that we have a certain idea of what we want Jesus to be. Do you know God for who he is instead of who you want him to be? That we look for this Jesus to fit a certain box, to do certain things. And when he doesn't fit in the box of what I think he should be or what he should say, you know what, like, I'll just put that to the side. I'll, I'll, choose, I'll pick and choose what Jesus would say. No, he's Lord of all or he's not at all. Here we learn that he is Lord and Messiah. And we're tempted to put God in a box or maybe to think, God only operates in a certain way, but here Peter urges the people and cuts them to the heart through this message that he is Lord of all. He's Messiah. He is what you're looking for. Now imagine this. And I say to you, and you're standing beside me, and let's just say your name is Paul. Have you met Paul? Paul is a great guy. He loves basketball. Uh, he's terrible at school, though. Um, he almost flunked out of university. He loves to use a MacBook and anything Apple. He's part of a club that learns how to do sailing knots. Uh, and he also likes to camp. And then Paul stands up here and says, wait a minute, Doug, uh, that's not me at all. Uh, that's not me at all. I don't play basketball. In fact, I hate it. Uh, it's, uh, I hate it. Uh, I'm not terrible at school. I'm getting straight A's. <laughs> I'm getting straight A's right now. I, almost, I don't flunk out of school. I'm doing really well. Uh, you like to, I don't like MacBook or Apple. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Water of the Spirit. Mm. <clears throat> As the deer panteth for the water. You like to, you're like, oh, I, like to, I, I, I hate the MacBook. I don't like anything Apple. I'm actually an Android kind of guy. I'm not part of sailing club. I'm scared of water. Uh, I don't like to camp. I hate being outdoors. And then I'm like, no, 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 Paul, no, no. I like you this way. <laughs> You're way more interesting. You're way more interesting in the way that I described you. Paul will be offended. And I think for us, as we approach this Jesus, we have this certain way that we like to paint a picture of this Jesus and what he likes and what he doesn't like. And we like to fit this Jesus in a box. And I think Jesus will be offended uh, by that as well. That Jesus, he's everything that we need and better. Anything that we can think of, he's better than that. Trying, uh, connecting this back to Pastor Howard's message last week about prayer, uh, if Jesus is everything that we need, then how does this practically play out in our lives? Do we seek his will? Do we pray? Do we, do we consider him? Do we fix our eyes on Christ in everything that we do? Where can we find Jesus 
in the way that we live in the every single day. So this message of them saying that Jesus is Lord, it cut them to the heart. Secondly, they were also responsible for the death of Jesus. So they realized that this Jesus is Lord and Messiah. They're like, oh man, what should we do? We realize he's, Jesus, he's Lord and Messiah and we killed him. Like we killed God. Like we put him on the cross. We totally missed the mark. In verse 23, uh, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And he repeats the same idea again in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. I repeated that verse before. You killed him. You crucified and you killed this Lord. Something happens to you when you realize you killed the Savior of the world. It cuts you to the heart that you're responsible for that. And Peter, as he's preaching this, knew he's a part of this. He's not preaching to people and at people. He's preaching actually with and to himself. Peter knew he had a part in this. When Peter was saying this, perhaps he's speaking even louder to himself that this God, this was a God, this is God that we followed and we killed him. He killed him. Peter put him on the cross when he denied him three times. Those are his, those nails were the same nails that, that Peter put him, put him up on the cross with. And there are still ways that we as human beings here today in the 21st century, we still kill Jesus. We still kill God with the lust of the flesh. When we follow our own desires and we follow our own ways, when we listen to the opinions of other people instead of following the will of God, when we think what is best instead of following what God says is best, and when we're in community and listening to people that he has placed around us, when we, when we come to those moments, and I've had those moments where I realize, man, I put Jesus on the cross. It's my sins that hung him there. It was my actions and my thoughts and my everyday living that put Jesus on the cross. That cuts us to the heart. That affects us. Have you been cut to the heart? Have you been cut to the heart by the gospel message? Not what you believe or what you think about this or that or what, you, what, what, what kind of understanding you have or what your family believes, not, not that, but have you been personally cut to the heart and have had this personal experience with Jesus as if it's just you and him on the cross as he's hanging, it's just you staring up at him in that pain and that anguish. Because the people there that day, when they heard that message, they felt it. They sensed it. They were cut to the heart from this. Verse 24, but God, there's good news, as Peter continues. It wasn't that you just put him on the cross and he died. What is great news, but God raised them from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. It's interesting, you might have caught there, at the very end, uh, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. I don't think the NIV does a very good translation here. The ESV does a little bit better. Uh, It says that the Father, uh, that he has received the, um, uh, he has received the promise of the Spirit. Not not that he has received the Spirit. Because Jesus is God himself. Uh, He didn't need to receive the Spirit because he is God. 
but he received the promise of the Spirit, meaning that when the Spirit came, it affirms who he is. And it shows that Jesus is really who he says he is. I had a conversation this week uh, with someone at our church, and we're just going through what the gospel is and just talking about Jesus and the death and resurrection. And then he paused me, and he, was, he said this to me, wait, what do you mean that Jesus rose from the dead? What do you mean that Jesus rose from the dead? I'm like, that's a great question. That's really, really good. Because in that moment, I say it so often that it just becomes normal to me. I say it so often that it's just like, that's, that's just what happens. Uh, I say it so often that I, I feel like there's no, there's no explanation. It's like, oh yeah, and I start getting to it. Like, yeah, yeah, when Jesus rose, he died, was crucified, was buried, but then when they went to the tomb three days later, they couldn't find his body and he appeared to more than 500 people, different witnesses. Uh, it's like, oh, but what, were there people guarding the tomb? Yeah, there's professional guards guarding the tomb and they were terrified and they saw the angels uh, and, well, could Jesus have faked his death? Well, no, because you could see his wounds on his side, and they saw him die as they pierced him on his side, and saw the blood and the water separate, and they buried him. It's like, well, could they have an impersonator? I was like, I. Then what? What happened to the body? Then what happened to all, all these? Uh, all, all the. Um, what, what happened to all the witnesses that really said saw this Jesus? Went on and on and on and on. And here, the new, the first century Christians, as they're hearing the story, their eyes were open and saw it in a different light again. They saw it in a new way. In Psalm 16, and he, he, quotes, uh, he quotes Psalm 16 uh, in verses 25 to 28. And Peter uses this to support the resurrection, to encourage the people. And speaking of support for the resurrection, he quotes from this psalm. He says this, because... In verse 27, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. In verse 26, that's why he's glad and his tongue rejoices and he can rest in this hope. That was the hope that the people were filled with that day. That was the same power, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead was what was filling the people that day as they were listening to Peter preach in the words of God, the Spirit of God piercing their hearts. And this word for will not, in other words, study if you're into this, this word for will not abandon is uk en katalepses, which means will not abandon. It's a verb that appears 179 times in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, where 21 times is found in the Psalms, but only one time in this verse here does it appear in connection with Hades and your flesh not decaying. God connects not abandoning with your flesh not decaying where you will live forever, only once in this psalm. What's the point? You're like, God, Doug, good for you. What's God trying to say here? Well, the psalms in the scriptures over and over and over again tell us that God will not abandon us. That God will not abandon us. That God will not abandon you no matter what is going on no matter what you're going through, no matter how painful your life is at this moment, no matter the questions that you have, no matter how lost you feel, no matter how your relationship is going, no matter how your marriage is going, no matter how much of a failure you feel, no matter how much pressure you're feeling at this moment, even though you know what the right decision is, but you're afraid of what the consequences would be from making that such a decision, we get this promise here that God will not abandon. 
that God is with us, that God is for us, that God is for you, that the people were cut to the heart. The people were moved by this message. This is an old promise that goes all the way back, that God is faithful, that he will not abandon his people. And we see this in verse 39. I don't have it up there, but in verse 39, it's not just for Jews, but it's to everyone. And the book of Acts will reveal that to us uh, later on, how the message explodes to the rest of the world. Now, as I end this morning, what did they do with this? This is all fine and dandy, right? I don't want to leave it intellectual. Uh, but what did they do with this? When they realized who this Jesus is and how they killed him. Well, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and, to, and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord or God will call. The command and the instructions are simple. Repent, be baptized, be filled. Repent, be baptized, be filled. Repent, be baptized, be filled. They sought for, as I explained this a little bit more, they, they, sought, they first sought forgiveness from Christ. They sought forgiveness from Christ. We see that in verse 38. The cross is the place of death. And you're like, how does that make sense? How did they, sought, how did they seek forgiveness from Christ when he hung on the cross when he was dying? Well, the cross is the place of death. But for the Christian, the cross is also the place of forgiveness. It's the place of new life. It's the place of experiencing life afresh. The cross is an invitation to grace. And understanding the cross is not enough, but it takes an active step towards the cross. They sought forgiveness from Christ. Think about this. Just as the two disciples that encountered Jesus, there are two disciples, two apostles that encountered Jesus, one Judas and one Peter, both were uh, convicted by their sin and by their brokenness. Two different reactions. What happened? Pastor Howard spoke on Judas last week. But I think as we, as we go into that, both of them felt the condemnation of the world. Both of them felt like failures. But what happened? One led Judas to hang himself, to hang himself. And one led Peter to go towards Christ. See, they both felt condemnation, but Peter responded differently. Peter responded to Jesus saying, Come back. Come back to me. Come back. This is the safest place to be. Not running away, further away from me. Don't listen to the ways of the world. No, come back. Come closer. Come farther in still. Don't listen to the voices of the world. Jesus is saying, come back. That this life isn't it. Stop looking for the answer in everything else but me. Come back. Because I am the answer. And I believe to the core of my being, there's something in all of us that feels estranged from God. That we feel like we're, that God doesn't want to be with us. That we will be ashamed that God will shun us away. That couldn't be farther away from the truth. God is saying, come back. As we go and seek forgiveness, as we come back towards him and reconcile, God is rejoicing, saying, come back to me. But they also, they changed their minds about God. They sought forgiveness from Christ, but they also changed their minds about God. And why I say this? Because that's another way of saying they repented. They repented. They repented. Repented means a change of mind. It's not just saying, I'm sorry. 
but it's a 180-degree turn. And in this context, it means to make a distinct turning away from whatever it is they're going towards and going towards God, turning back towards God. This repentance here is about a change in direction, a change in direction from the attitudes that led them to crucify Christ, change in direction from the attitudes that led them to crucify Christ to now one that looks to Christ. That was the repenting. It was a changing from that kind of attitude that crucifies Christ to putting him on the cross to, God, I'm coming towards you now. I'm I'm moving towards you now. I want this forgiveness from you. Church is not about doing better. When we come towards God, it's not about doing better or trying harder. It's about a whole new attitude. It's about a total change of the heart, an inside-out change. When you see the steadfast love of those around you, you want to respond with steadfast love. When I experience the love for my wife, Jess, the response I want to give back is love back. Not, oh, Jess loves me and she knows, like, you know, she won't mind if I go off and cheat on her. No, that wouldn't make sense. The response to love is love. The response to love is, is, is an action. Like, yeah, Jess loves me and I want to love her back. And as I love her, she wants to love me back more. It's a cycle, this, this, this feedback loop. That, that we're caught up in. It's not about doing better. It's about a whole new attitude. It's, and, and it's for us to experience the goodness of God, is to see the love of God for who he really is and for us to respond and to change our minds, to change our hearts and affections. I've been quoting Jay, uh, Jamie Taylor a lot. He wrote this book called You Are What You Love. It's about reorientating our loves, that our, we are distracted. We love a lot of things in this world, but every single Sunday, every time we go we'll in fellowship, every time we meet with one another, we're reorientating our loves, reminding ourselves of what our heart's affection should be. It ought to be love God first. God has to be in place first, and then everything else flows, and our life is a response from the goodness of God. Why? Because it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. As we see his goodness, we respond back and say, God, I am the sinner and broken, but I am also loved by you, and I'm filled by you. And that day, they were filled. So they surrendered. They sought forgiveness. They changed their minds. And then they surrendered. There's only one absolute response when we encounter God. The one right response is surrender. To surrender all that we are. Not, God, I'll go to church more. I'll clean up my life. My language, you know, I'll, I won't speak in the way that I do. I'll give more money and offering. Now, God isn't interested in changing behavior. He's interested in saving your soul. He's interested in you experiencing new life. He's interested in relationship. Jesus isn't only after your behavior. He's wanting you to surrender, all of you, to experience all of him. It's not about becoming a better person. It's about recognizing the lordship of Jesus and saying that he is Lord and that he is first. Back when we could travel, the Peace Arch, anyone been down to the Peace Arch? There's that big Peace Arch. <laughs> like, and somewhere along the lines, there's a line, right? You cross into America. And as a kid and maybe older as an immature adult, uh, I would go on the line like, hey, I'm in the States. I'm in Canada. I'm in the States. I'm in Canada. I would jump back and forth, jump back and forth. I don't know if I actually was or not. That's probably just ceremonial. 
But you, but for us in the church, for us as Christians, you either cross the line or you don't. And many of us maybe feel like we're straddling the line of Christianity. I'm kind of in the world. I'm also in Christ. I'm in the world. In Christ, no, like in, in here we get this image that you surrender all of you in Christ. That you fully surrender. And every single day is an active step of saying, God, I choose you. I choose to be with you. I choose to be in relationship with you. You either have crossed the line and you said that Jesus and believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, or you haven't. That is as clear as day that Peter is making the claim for us here. So he's saying here, he's your Savior. But maybe you haven't made him your Lord yet. Or maybe you haven't been an active disciple of Christ and you're struggling. You're not following Jesus. Or maybe you compare yourselves to others and say, well, I'm not as bad as the person next to me. But sorry to tell you that God doesn't grade on a curve. For you personally here today, have you made that dedication and that step to say that Jesus is Lord and Savior and to say that he is your God? Because the call is real here, as Peter ends, with many other words, 30 minutes, <laughs> he pleaded with them, save yourselves with this corrupt generation. This corrupt generation. And we're still in that corrupt generation now, where people are wrestling and struggling, trying to figure it out. And we're called to be lights in this crooked and depraved generation. The secret of the church is the power of the Spirit. Have you received him? Have you accepted him? Have, do you believe in him? Because for that day, it was 3,000 people who, who, where, where their lives were changed forever. On that day, 3,000 people were saved or they returned back to God. And this day could be that day for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you, God, that though we are weak, you are good and you're just and you remembered us and you love us before we knew you. So I pray, God, for our church and for anyone that's listening online as well, as part of our community here, Lord, that we would experience your presence, that you would breathe fresh on us the power of your spirit, that we would say no to the ways of the world and say yes to you, God, that we would be filled with your power, with your hope, with your joy, with whatever it is that we need from you, Lord, today. We surrender and we say, God, that you are Lord and you are Messiah. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.